It's been a long week. It's been a holiday week. You've been busy. You were tired. It is uh, rainy and gloomy outside. And you put all that together with the fact that I have a very lengthy scripture, scripture reading to make this morning. And uh, the odds would be against us to make it through and to hear much of anything said. The odds would be against us if it wasn't God's holy word and he wasn't at work in the lives of his people. So this morning we do have a lengthy reading and if you're joining us for the first time, if you're a visitor jumping in, I do feel the need to recap that we have been studying, looking to the book of Hebrews uh, for about 13 weeks now. And we understand that Hebrews is probably best understood as a sermon letter. It's written to a Hebrew Christian community where some of the people are thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus to return to their previous way of thinking and living and worshiping God. And the reason they're thinking about going back could be somewhat nostalgic for their former way of life. But really, it's probably because of persecution and hardship associated with Jesus. And so they are, some of them, at the point of thinking, you know, maybe we'll just abandon this Christianity and this Jesus. And so the sermon letter and the author of Hebrews, and we do not know specifically who the author is or who the recipients of his letter are or were, but he has gone out of his way to show the worst thing you could do would be to abandon your faith and your hope in Jesus to go back to better days. Because you would abandon the one who is greater than angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. So he's made a, an argument, a case in his sermon letter. Don't you dare go back and abandon what the Lord himself has given you. He's even chided his hearers saying, I'd like to be able to talk to you about some substantial things, but you're so dull in hearing, you don't even try to understand the beautiful complexities of God's Word. And he says that not just to embarrass them, but he says that to move them on to maturity, that they would rise up, respond to the challenge, and demonstrate that they can grow and have a persevering, sincere, and saving faith. Now, that's a lot of words already. But this, this morning, the reason I'm going to read all of chapter 7 is because the author is now circling back to comments he had begun to make before he interrupted himself with all those comments about their being dull in hearing, they're not even trying to understand. He had commented about this mysterious, unique figure called Melchizedek. He's mentioned him several times, but he interrupted his flow of thought to chide them a bit. Now he returns to Melchizedek. And as I read this, I think in the bulletin, some of my personal notes made their way into the scripture reading. You'll see I have a structure to it. I didn't intend for you to see that, but to hear it. But anyway, this is Hebrews chapter 6, circling back to verse 19 for context. And then the entirety of chapter 7. And the reason we hear it all at once is he 
it takes him a while to get to his point, as it is me this morning. <laughs> but there is a point to be heard. So give your attention. Hebrews chapter 6, 19 through 7, 28. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the, patri excuse me, the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, 
Jesus has become the grantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray for God's help in understanding his word. Lord, would you be our teacher? Long text, much history, much theology. But Lord, would you help us to see the beauty and what can be applied by faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Well, this morning, about three. Um, you remember the old commercial, um, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop roll, right? And nobody knows because you just you end up chewing it. Well, this morning, how do you take chapter 7 and get to the nougat, get to the good stuff? Well, this morning, I, I think we're going to take three good looks, three good licks at what is in Hebrews 7. And I'm going to try to condense it and make it as simple as possible. And so we have a, a historical uh, perspective, a theological perspective, and then finally a practical application of of all that that is said there. Listen, chapter 7 buries every one of us in details and content. And I don't want to do that this morning. So let's take three good looks, three good licks at it. But before we do, the big picture of context for us to begin with is this. You have purchased something in this world that came with a warranty or a guarantee of some kind. And let's just admit that every warranty and guarantee that we know is probably marred with fine print that undermines the promise and guarantee that is made, right? Um, whether it's a Ginsu knife or a space bag or whatever you may have purchased off the internet, it came with a guarantee of some kind, but it's limited by 30 days. It's limited by some fine print that really takes the goody away, right? Not true here. Not true in this promise of God and in this new covenant that I hope this morning, the, the big walk away for every one of us is that you'll see how much better what we have in Jesus is than what we had before Jesus and what we can have apart 
from Jesus. So three big licks. The first this morning is the historical. That's verses 1 through 10. I've, I've outlined it this way. Verses 1 through 10 go into the historical background and context of this unique and mysterious character called Melchizedek. Now, if you want to read the first-hand account of Melchizedek, you can read from Genesis 14. But the author gives us a quick summary of the contents of Genesis 14. And then there's a reference in Psalm 110 that is quoted here and is actually quoted several times in Hebrews about Melchizedek, showing that it's a messianic psalm connecting to, pointing to Jesus. Lots of details there, but I've, I've summed it down to just a few so that maybe around lunch you could talk about Melchizedek with a, an understanding even for your children. And the first thing about Melchizedek for us to understand is his name. That's a weird name, Melchizedek. Well, it's a meaningful name. And the meaning is from a compound use of words that communicate what God wanted us to know. So Melchi is the word, the Hebrew word for king. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And you put Melchi with Zedek and you get Melchizedek is how we would say it. And it's the king of righteousness. It's a title given to communicate something from the Lord's perspective of meaning and value to be understood by the people. So you have a king and his name is king of righteousness. The second thing to understand about Melchizedek is his place, where he's from. And the passage says and translates for us, he's from Salem. He's the king of Salem. So his name means king of righteousness, but he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So this unique, mysterious figure, he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. This Salem would later be called Jerusalem or Jerusalem. And so you see what's kind of shadowy and cloudy begins to become more clear to our later understanding of Scripture. This mysterious figure is a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And he's unique in a very special way that we're told in verse 2 and verse 4. He's a king. He's called a king. But Abraham, upon returning from a victorious battle, he pays tithes to this king, giving him the attributes of a priest. Now, you may remember that in the Old Testament, there were offices of ministry. There was the office of prophet. There was the office of priest. There was the office of king. Three separate and distinct offices. Nobody held two of those offices in one person. But Melchizedek, strangely, mysteriously does. So he is in this way the priestly King That makes him unique. That makes him special. He's to be remembered because God was doing something special in Melchizedek. And it also says that this Melchizedek was, fourthly, mysterious. He's a mysterious figure. 
He's mysterious in that he has no start. He has no finish. He has no genealogy that is given. Now, that's more significant seeming to them than we think it is to us. But if you were a Hebrew hearing that, you would know that any person of significance, their genealogy is known and is listed. Read through the Old Testament. Read the beginning of the Gospels. Where you came from, the people you came from, proved your significance. The author says, we don't know the genealogy of this man. In that way, he has no beginning. We don't know what comes of him. He, he has no end. So he has no start. He's no finish. There's no gene- genealogy given. But we know that he's not a Levite. We know that he's not of Aaron. And that turns everything upside down into a mystery for the Hebrew that would be hearing that. Because they understood that the priests would come from Levi. But this shows us that then, even then, the Lord knew He was doing something unique. His redemptive purposes would not fit uniformity and conformity with people's expectations. He would prove Himself even outside of genealogy and expected lines of family. And so you put all that together, and I know it's a lot, but you put it together and Melchizedek is a unique mysterious, shadowy figure. Now, when I say shadowy figure, I don't mean that he's shady. I mean that he's, it's ambiguous, it's unclear, but there's something of substance to this. We're just not real clear who it is. That's all under the historical verses 1 through 10. Now, the second section, verses 11 through 25, the theological The author's point in his sermon is that Jesus is better than this unique, mysterious, shadowy figure of Melchizedek. Jesus is better than him. And he goes on to make his point this way. I'll sum it into three things. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus offers a better hope because Jesus offers a better covenant. Let's look at that briefly. Listen to verses 16 and verses 24 and 25. The author says, One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, his genealogy, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And there he's making the point about the genealogy. Jesus is better than Melchizedek because he is not dependent upon his genealogy. He's a better priest because of an indestructible life. He will live forever. His life is indestructible. So in that way, he is a better priest. He is better than Melchizedek. Then verses 24 and 25. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Those who come to God through Him, because He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is a better priest because His priesthood is indestructible. A priest in the Old Testament, eventually those eyes and those hands that He used in His priestly duties, His eyes would begin to fail Him. 
His hands, his tasticity would begin to fail him. Sinclair Ferguson says that about the age 50, priests would begin to retire. Not so much because they physically couldn't, with strength, do the tasks of the priest. He says it's because their eyes failed them. And one of their responsibilities was to inspect sacrifices. They were to inspect individuals for skin lesions, for leprosy, for imperfections. And the priest was this visible picture of one in whom the clock was always ticking. There would be a day that he couldn't function, he couldn't perform the duties of a priest. And so the people would be reminded of, well, we have a priest in the short term, but one day our priest is going to have to be replaced with somebody else. When his eyes fail him, when his back fails him, when his strength fails him. But Jesus is not a priest who will ever be replaced. He has a permanent priesthood based on an indestructible life. So Jesus is a better priest. Not only that, but Jesus provides what the author says is a better hope. Listen again to verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Verse 19. He says it himself. It is a better hope. Jesus and the new covenant is a better hope for believers, for worshipers. It's a better priesthood. It's a better hope. And then thirdly, he says it's a better covenant with better promises. Listen to verse 22. Because of this oath, this promise of God, Jesus has become the grantor of a better covenant. Now, if you can track back to the things he said in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the author is ministering to these people who are thinking about giving up their faith in Jesus, and he's saying everything is better why would you abandon what is better to go backwards? The new covenant, what God has done in Christ, is better, it's better, it's better. And in this way, he is saying that Jesus is a unique, mysterious, and concrete reality. Melchizedek was unique and mysterious, but shadowy. Jesus is unique he is mysterious, and He is a concrete reality. Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the substance? Do you see what He's saying? It's a long argument. It's based on history. It's based on theology. But that is the meat of His argument. He's saying that Jesus is unique. You know, Melchizedek, wow, what a guy. Two offices in one person. But Jesus was more unique than Melchizedek because he was prophet, he was priest, and he was king. All three offices perfectly in one God-man. So as unique as Melchizedek was, Jesus is more unique. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Secondly, he's, Jesus is mysterious. 
Melchizedek was mysterious. His genealogy wasn't known. Nothing was listed. That's very unusual for the Hebrews. But what does Jesus say of himself? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says it's all fulfilled in me. Everything from A to Z, we would say. He's a mysterious yet concrete, unique person, the God-man. So there's historical reasons, there are theological reasons to understand that Jesus is better. But the author went to all that detail, more than I could even comment on, to get to the practical. And this is the third point. Verses 26 to 28, and I would sum it up this way. The practical is this. The author says, he is able. He is able. Listen again, verses 26 to 28. Such a high priest, Jesus, truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So three things, three practical reasons why these Hebrews and why we should never consider abandoning our faith in Jesus. The first is in verse 26. He says he is able to truly meet our need. Now when he says that, he is saying that all those previous sacrifices, they were but shadows. They saved no one. They pointed to Jesus, who would be the ultimate sacrifice. He is truly able to meet our need. And when he says need, he's not interpreting it in categories like we do, typically. Our felt needs, the things we feel like we need. He's talking about the one ultimate need for righteousness that sinners have in the presence of of a holy God. He's talking about legitimate, spiritual, heavenly needs. And he says Jesus alone can provide that. He can truly meet your need. Then he says that it is done through one final sacrifice. That there is one sacrifice that can cover all. And how would you turn and walk away from that? How could you give up the one effectual thing for all these other things that lead to nothing, that accomplish nothing. You know, we live in an era right now of, of vaccines and boosters. And some would say, I have no idea. Some would say in our future are endless vaccines and boosters. Well, there's kind of a parallel to the Old Testament priesthood there. Constantly bringing sacrifice for sin. Never satisfying the demands Never able to get the quota. But what if there was one pill, one shot, one person, 
once and for all resolving spiritual need for righteousness. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is no need for continued sacrifices. You have the antidote to the problem of human sin if you have Jesus. And how is that possible? Because of thirdly, Jesus has been made perfect forever. In that sacrifice, He has been made perfect forever. And He can make His people perfect forever. Imagine that. A work that is done that lasts, that is permanent, that is effectual, that counts. We don't know anything like this in our English-speaking, American-living life. The closest effort was probably Willy Wonka's everlasting gobstopper that would never lose its flavor. It would never diminish. It would never go. That was his effort to capture this imagery of, wow, what if, what if something really could last? But Jesus has provided a sacrifice with an oath from God that says this will last. It is everlasting. An everlasting priest with an everlasting sacrifice. It almost seems impossible. Sometimes the most beautiful things do seem impossible. But God has sealed it with an oath. He's guaranteed it, He has said. We have a priest. He is perfect. He is perpetual. And He says to these Hebrew Christians, how could you ever walk away and go back to shadowy things when you have the concrete, real, living thing within your grasp. That's what he says. I'll end with this. If you're reading Hebrews, if you're listening to Hebrews, the argument is that Jesus is better. He is, he is way better than we understand. In fact, everything about Jesus in the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. And any part of you or me, whether it be nostalgia or fear or hardship or suffering, any part of us that would look back at the Old Covenant, the old ways that God dealt with His people, and say, well, I just kind of missed that. That was, that was better. Are you sure? There's nothing about the Old Covenant that is better than the New. I challenge you this week to think about that. Is there any way in which you've made the old ways, the old ways of God, as if they're better than the New? The author of Hebrews says, Jesus supersedes everything we've known about God's working with man, about God's redeeming sinners to Himself. Everything about the New Covenant is better Jesus is better. How could we ever turn and walk away and go backwards? Whether it's nostalgia, whether it's fear, hardship, or suffering, Jesus is better, and we're in good hands. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, our prayer would be that we would see and know and believe that Jesus is better. Lord, would you, for those who are struggling, those who feel that they're suffering, those who feel persecuted, 
maybe those who are nostalgic for past times, would you show us this week in very real ways how much better what you have done for us in Christ is than anything else we could ever ask for or imagine? Lord, do this. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.